0: All right. Um, even though this is the Old Testament, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to First Timothy. That is New Testament. We're going to start there. Um, several of you have commented on the fact that that's all there is, and you've been—if you've been around—you know that usually um, takes two trees per Wednesday to to fund our uh, uh, paper notes, but. Um, we're not, it's not a money-saving thing. We're just going to try to um, maybe encourage a little more discussion and note-taking instead of giving you every single word I say. We'll see how it goes, but um, just giving you a little bit more of a skeleton outline of what we're going to talk about, especially for this series. I think it makes sense. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I want to start just kind of setting the stage for this whole series. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. In verse 14, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14, these are the words of Paul. And um, Paul says this, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. And I want you to look at this last phrase, the pillar and the ground of the truth. The pillar and ground, one translation says the prop and the support of the truth. Uh, The NIV says the pillar and foundation of the truth. So let's just pause for a moment, and I want you to understand what that scripture says. Um, Paul says the church's job, part of the church's job, is to hold up the truth. It is to be the support, the pillar, the foundation um, of the truth. If you ever read the message translation, it says the bastion of truth. And so really the thing that we are commissioned to do as the church is to make sure that the truth of God's word is being upheld. And so that's part of what this series is called and hence the title, The Whole Truth. We're going to try to work our way through the Bible over the next year or two and really come uh, prepared to uh, demonstrate the whole truth. Now, flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and um, I want you to look at verse number 14. When it gets to the Old Testament, um, let me just ask you, if you're not embarrassed to say, how many have read the Old Testament a lot? All right, most of you have. Okay, um, how many would say you have read the New Testament more than the Old Testament? All right, probably everybody here. Um, the Old Testament, there are those, I'm uh, probably not here, but there are those that think, man, that's just too much, too many stories, uh, kings and blood and, and thousands of people dying at once and... and names and genealogies, and I'll just jump to Jesus in the New Testament, and just the Jesus stuff will do. Um, and, and that's an understandable um, sentiment. But I do want you to see 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 14. Paul says this, "...but you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing them, knowing from whom you have learned them." That from your childhood, you have known the holy scriptures. The word for scriptures is graphe in the Greek. Um, What scriptures, he's talking to Timothy, did Timothy know? He didn't know any of the New Testament. There wasn't a New Testament. I'm sorry. Yeah, You were going to answer that question. Yes. Okay. It was sort of rhetorical and I answered my own. Um, So when he says you've known the scriptures from your childhood, he's talking about the Old Testament. There was no New Testament yet. All right. This is just in the writing. We'll read on all scripture. Again, the word is graphe is given by inspiration of God and it is all profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So he didn't say most scripture. He said all scripture. And the only scripture that was at that time was the Old Testament. So he says to Timothy, hey, it's all profitable to you for doctrine, reproof, correction, and for righteousness. And so because of that, we are going to focus our attention on the Old Testament. Rick, were you going to ask a question? It does spring forward to the New Testament. As a matter of fact, we won't do it today because we're talking about the Old Testament. But but actually, Peter writes um, in one of his epistles. I don't have the verse in front of me. But Peter actually includes the letters of Paul as graphe when he writes later on and, and, and puts it in the same category as the Old Testament. So, yeah, absolutely. Peter did. Yeah. Uh, in fact... Um, of course, that takes in what half of the New Testament of the writings of Paul. So we, do, Peter, at least puts that under the cover of the Grafe. The well, there was no canon at this point when this is written. Well, it would not include, I mean, Peter is only making reference to, to Pauline word. There was an Old Testament canon already at the time that would have been considered the graphe that does not include things, the apocryphal books and things like that that you're talking about. So Paul's, Paul's statement here would be talking about the, what, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew Bible, which would be the 39 books that we now consider the Old Testament canon. Yeah. All right. So let me now uh, on your outline. This is just an overview. I'm going to give you a quick little overview of the Old Testament. You may want to jot some stuff down. I'll put a few things on the board here. I want to give you just a general understanding of the Old Testament. There are 39 books in the Old Testament, 30 authors, at least 30 authors. And um, it's written in Hebrew. All right. Um, There are five components to the Old Testament. The first one is the Pentateuch, and I'll explain that in just a moment, Um, and I'll talk about the the word that 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 comes from. Um, The Pentateuch is Genesis through Deuteronomy, okay? So it's the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, the second section, of course, is the historical books. And um, the historical books would be beginning in Joshua. And um, let me think, Joshua or Samuel, 7 Kings, Cross, Fox, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Yes, uh, it would be through Esther. I had to sing the songs, of the, the Bible songs in my head to do that. Um, the third part would be the writings. Um, So this would begin with, with Job. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Or the Song of Songs is really a better translation. So this would be, this is also sometimes called wisdom literature. So that's the third division. Then we have the major prophets. All right, and then the minor prophets. Major prophets would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Lamentations, which is written by Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. So you have Isaiah through Daniel. And then there are 12 minor prophets, which would be Hosea through Malachi. All right, So that's how the Old Testament is divided. 39 books in all, um, Pentateuch, historical books, the writings. I said this is called wisdom literature. Uh, A lot of it is poetry, the poetic books. Um, I wrote that little book uh, on the poetic books for a class that I teach, and we have those in the bookstore. I guess I just tried to sell my book. But anyway, that's on the poetic books. Um, so these are the five divisions. I'll back away so you can see this. Pentateuch, historical, the writings, the major prophets, and the minor prophets. Um, and this is what we're going to focus our attention on over the next um, several months, as a matter of fact. Now, we're going to start here, and we'll be spend quite a bit of time in the Pentateuch. Um, let me tell you a few things about the Pentateuch. Uh, get your Bibles open, too because uh, I want to show you this. The Pentateuch, we believe, most people believe, most scholars believe, that the Pentateuch was written by Moses, all right? That is the most likely guess that we have. It's not, I guess, not really a guess, but the most likely um, outcome. Uh, turn to Exodus twenty-five, one. i I'm going to show you just a few verses to kind of back up our understanding of of Moses as the author. Exodus 25, 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, and then there's a whole long section of God speaking through Moses. If you will look at Leviticus chapter 1 and verse 1, Leviticus 1 and verse 1, you will see similar words um, Leviticus 1 and verse 1, says this, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, and then you get the whole delivery of what God said to Moses. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We know that Deuteronomy is um, what we call the last will and testament of Moses. He is he's getting ready to die. Tells him everything he knows, everything they've been through. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 1 um, says, These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel. So most people believe that Moses is the author. And if that is not enough, probably the greatest verification, turn to the New Testament, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Luke 24 in verse number 27, Luke 24 and verse 27. And uh, this is when, remember on the resurrection day, when um, there's two disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus, and Jesus comes alongside them and begins to talk with them, and they don't recognize it's Jesus, and they're kind of upset because the one that they had hoped would be the Messiah has been crucified, and 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 they're they're telling Jesus all their problems, and and they didn't understand that um, that it was Him. And Jesus says to them in verse twenty-five, actually, "O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken." Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And look at the next verse. And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Luke says that Jesus began with Moses, what Moses wrote, and he used all the prophets to explain to them things about Christ. And so, again, Jesus seems to verify that Moses is the author of at least a portion of the Old Testament. And we believe that he was likely the author of all of the Pentateuch. So that's where that understanding comes from. Now, there is a a text at the end of Deuteronomy that says that uh, God, that Moses died... And God buried him, and nobody knows where God buried him. Obviously, Moses could not have written that. And so there was uh, someone who closed up the book for Moses and wrote about his death. But, but our best understanding, um, and, and from research, most people believe that Moses is the author of these five books. Let me tell you a little bit about the Pentateuch. Um, uh, Penta, obviously, means five, right? Pentagon, Uh, It's a five-sided geometrical object. And then where that's the second part of this word, means scrolls. So Pentateuch is the five scrolls. That's literally what that means. And those five scrolls are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. You know, parents sometimes say to their children, uh, do what I say, not what I do. I would say to you about my writing, do what I say, not what I write. Because you can't read that. I understand that. So, um, but the Pentateuchos, the Pentateuchos, uh, the five scrolls, first five books of the Bible, that's Genesis through the book of Deuteronomy. All right, so that's just a little background to that. If Moses authored it, which we believe he did, um, it, it would have been written somewhere between 1446 and I think about 1400. This is probably the time. This is before Christ that these five books were written. That's our best, our best guess. All right. Uh, Any questions about that? I'm going to erase this in just a second and give you one more piece of an overview, and then we're going to jump into Genesis 1. Any questions? Everybody got that? Pretty simple, straightforward. Um, Now, let's talk about the divisions of Genesis. Now we're going to skip the other four books of the Pentateuch, and we're going to focus our attention just on Genesis. there are a couple of ways that people divide the Book of Genesis. A pretty common way is to say that um, the first 11 books would be considered the primeval um, section of um, of Genesis, and then chapters 12 through 20 or through 50 would be the ancestral. Portion of Genesis. That's that's actually a pretty common um, way to divide the book of Genesis. However, I'm going to give you a different way, and this is how we're going to look at it. We're going to spend four weeks in Genesis, and this is the way we're going to look at it. Um, actually, this comes from a, a scholar by the name of Walter Brueggemann, um, and let me make sure I get my terms right here. Um, he he divides. Um, the book of Genesis around what he calls the call. And he says that Genesis 1 through 11 would be the sovereign call of God. So that's Genesis 1 through 11, and that's what we're actually going to look at today, Genesis 1 through 11. Um, And then he um, talks about the Abraham narrative Um, the whole story of Abraham. This is actually a pretty good way to divide it. And he calls this the embraced call of God. God calls Abraham and he embraces it. He goes to where God calls him to go. Then uh, the next big, and that would be actually chapters 12 um, through about 25, I think. Uh, 25, 26. Then there is the Jacob, a little bit about Isaac, but there's really not, Isaac's kind of melded into the Abraham story. The Jacob narrative takes up much of the Bible and he calls the Jacob story the conflicted call of God. And you'll see why when we spend week three on Jacob. If there was ever... A conflicted man in the Old Testament. It was Jacob. His whole life was was conflict. Um, and then the Joseph narrative at the end, which is uh, chapters thirty-seven. So this would be twenty-six through uh, through thirty-six, and then thirty-seven through fifty is the Joseph narrative. And he calls this the hidden call of God. It does that because when you think about think about Joseph's life. Um, It was kind of a mysterious call. He's in prison. He's in a pit. He's forgotten in Egypt for a long time. Um, So this is how we're going to look at Genesis. And this section right here, the first 11 chapters, is what we're going to attempt to unpack uh, this morning. This is the prehistory or the sovereign call of God. So Let's go to Genesis chapter one, and uh, let's see if we can get this done. All right, Genesis one one. In the beginning, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, um, what what happens in these opening verses of Genesis? In the beginning, is Moses, the author, introduces the development. Uh, the developments that that take place in preparing for the creation of man. All right, because the whole story—I'll say it again later—the whole story of the Bible is the story of 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 God interacting with humanity. So what happens in these opening verses is really just in preparation for the creation of Adam and Eve, or for the creation of humanity. So let me read the first two verses to you. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form, and it was void. Chaotic is really what the Hebrew word means. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, beginning in verse 3... God said, let there be light. Beginning in verse 3 and going all the way through chapter 2 and verse 3, there is the sequence and the progression of this whole era of God's creation and the way he organized things. Let me just give you, you've got notes there, you can write down what happens each day, but we're not going to read all of the scriptures. But on day 1, God creates or he separates, darkness was already there, but he separates light from darkness. And there was day and there was night. All right? Uh, So day one is a separation of light and darkness. There is a day and there is a night. That's verses three through five of chapter one. On day two, verses six through eight of chapter one, uh, the firmament is set apart. Um, that is, the waters and the heavens um, are separated uh, from the earth. There is a, there is a separation of, of heaven and earth and the waters. There is a, a, a dividing of those on day two. On day three, which is um, verses 9 through 13... The land and the water are separated, and vegetation begins to appear. Trees begin to grow, uh, flowers pop up, um, food sources begin to develop on day three. On day four, which is verses 14 through 19 of chapter one, the luminaries begin to function, the sun, the moon, the stars set in place. That's why David says, when I consider the heavens um, in Psalm 8, sun and the moon, um, what is man that thou art mindful of him? It's an awesome thing. Nothing more awesome than to walk out on a completely clear night and see all the stars in the sky. This is day four day four. Remember in Isaiah, when uh, God is saying to Isaiah, who will you compare me to? And and he tells him to look up and see the stars. And he says, who, who made all of those? And he answers his own question. Um, the same one that calls them all out by name every night. And because of his great power, not one of them is missing. So day four, the luminaries function, begin to function. Day five, It's the creation of the sea and the sky creatures, birds, and that which is in the water on day 5, verses 20 through 23. And then day 6, verses 24 through 31, there is the creation of land, animals, and man on day 6 that will inhabit the earth. Now, what's interesting is later on, really not later on, immediately there will be a a distinguishing. This is important for our culture. There will be a distinguishing between the animals and man that are both created on day six. Man is given dominion over them. We now live in a world where... um, in my opinion, the far left have um, melded the importance of the life of a whale or a bird or a koala bear and made that the same value as the life of the unborn in the womb of the mother. That is nonsense. That's not the biblical picture. Both. Animals and humanity were created on day six, and immediately God set the, the humanity above the animals and gave them dominion. As a matter of fact, when we get to the Noah story, animals will become free game to even eat by humanity. So um, there, there is there is a distinction made right off the bat. They are not the same. Um, they're not the same because God spoke animals into creation he made man out of dust and breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul completely different from from any animal i know we love our pets but they are not on laurie's not in here right i can say this they are not on the same level as humanity they're just not and um they did. They do not have the imago dei, the image of God, stamped on them. That's only humanity. There's a distinction. And uh, you know, when I was talking about this, is a perfect example. When I was talking Sunday morning about part of our problem in our culture and some of the dumb decisions that are made is because people don't know the Bible. Um, a lot of this whole leftist ideology comes because they don't understand Genesis 1. They don't know it. They don't understand. I mean, I know we're all sitting here and we've heard it all our lives. Many of us have. But I'm telling you, there are millions of Americans who don't know that on the sixth day, God created the animals and then he formed man out of dust and breathed into him the breath of life and he became a living soul. And so in their mind, life is life. A tree is the same as You know, they might even say, well, we believe God made them all, but they don't know the story. And so they just think God made them all equally. God did not make them all equally. He breathed into humanity his breath, and he became a living soul. Does that make sense to everybody? So that's what happened on day six. And the vegetation, then, God says, is given to humanity to sustain humanity. You can eat that stuff that I made. It's for you to sustain you. Um, And then on day seven... God Rested, chapter 2, 1 through 3. So those are the days of creation and how that process worked. But I want you to notice something else before we move to the issues of creation. Just one other thought. And this kind of goes back to what I just said. Man is the focal point. When I say man, humanity is the focal point of God's creation and is the centerpiece of this whole narrative. You look in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, all the way through verse 25, it describes that God created man, humanity, in his image from the dust, breathed in him to the breath of life. And then he even said to Adam, you name all the animals. I mean, he gave him complete dominion. You name all the animals. And the habitat of Eden became um, where humanity would, would exist and live. Now let's talk about some of the issues of the creation narrative. Um, yes. What did he make the animals? From? He created them. He spoke them. So he just spoke them into existence. He spoke everything else into existence. So yes. But man was different. He made man out of something. Mm-hmm. So he made him out of the dust. But everything else he just he just spoke. spoke Correct. Well, he formed man, formed man, and then breathed into man. He spoke the lion into existence. I'm, but I'm just saying, he, you know, he didn't use any material. He just spoke and it happened. Correct. For the animals. Right. But for us, he used a material, he used something to form us. Bible says dust, yes. Yeah. Right. Right. I don't know what that means well no there's really two ways though that we're distinct he used something and he breathed into us Mm -hmm. and we became a living soul the others have life but not the living soul that that, um, connects with God what about angels well can you just relax a little minute Rick (laughs) Man, you just came all intense, ready for every Bible question in the world, right? No, you're fine. Um, well, obviously, my understanding of where angels were created would, be, would predate Genesis 1-1. Yeah, or at least Genesis 1-2. It would at least predate Genesis 1-2. Angels, the Bible is the story of humanity. That's, that was my whole point. Um, we don't really need to know the that which happened before this is um i'll talk about it when i get to it's one of the issues we're going to bring up okay yeah you just like to bring up issues before there are issues i understand right yeah all right um so let me there's really four issues that i want to talk about you may want to jot these down number one the uniqueness of the christian creation narrative all right the uniqueness of the Christian creation narrative. Don't mean to mess with your heads here, but, but almost every religion has their own creation story, how it came to be. That's just, you read the Babylonian um, religions, and they had a creation story too, all right? Even somewhat similar to this creation story. Um, but the difference is always that the Christian story narrative of creation has a starting point and has an ending point. Six days later, later it was finished and God rested. When you read any other religious creation narrative, you will find that they believe, I th- think about... Um, Hindus or Buddhist, and they really all fit into this. I maybe made too much of a blanket statement. there are um, others that are a little bit more similar to the Christian, but most of them have and i don't want to I don't want to get too confusing here, but most of them have a cyclical story that is the cycle of life, and we reincarnate and we go round and round and round, and it's just this. And they don't have a a fixed starting point. There's no, it just, this is how it is, but they don't have a fixed starting point. The Christian story says, in the beginning God created, and on day seven he rested. Dennis? So they think they're right. Of course they think they're right. Well, absolutely. Yeah. How did they get to that point? Environment? Well, yeah, everything is a perversion of this. I mean um um Muslims are a um are a perversion of Christianity i mean that it, it's we don't want to submit read Romans one we don't want to submit to God we want to worship and serve the creature more than the creator and so then you have to build a narrative around your religion that has pulled away from the one and true religion so that's that's how it happened um It's just a development. Once you reject that there is a moral authority that created you and made you in his image and says you can do this and you can't do this, if you don't want that, you've got to create another story for your existence. Everybody has to have a story for their existence. And so they create a story, a a narrative that keeps them away from having to answer to a God that is the final final authority. Yes, Paul? Huh? Did God have a soul? soul? (laughs) Uh, The Bible says God is a spirit. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. That's what the Bible says. I'll just go with that. It doesn't say he does or does not have a soul, but it says emphatically God is a spirit. So I'll just, we'll just stick with for sure what he says. So... um, Somebody else, and this is going to get tougher than Revelation. This is just Genesis. I have all these questions. Okay. Uh, Jesse? Would you also say that this is like yeah, yeah. Christian, yeah. It's, you're absolutely right. This is, um, yeah. Judeo-Christian, yes. Jews believe exactly this way as well. You, thank you for that clarification. It's the uniqueness of the Judeo-Christian creation narrative. Absolutely. Um, so that's number one any other questions about that All right. did I say we're spending 12 weeks on Genesis I think that's what I said aren't you glad I don't have 10 pages of notes right okay number two let me tell you what the biblical creation narrative is not it is not an argument for the existence of God it just assumes in the beginning God So, if you're going to try to argue the existence of God from Genesis, you're not, you, we we assume, we believe God has always been. All right? So, you're not going to, don't, don't try to go there. You won't be able to. We, we believe God has always existed. It's not an argument for the existence of God. Neither is it an attempt to answer scientific questions. I'll talk about the flip-flop of that in just a moment. So, the biblical creation narrative is not, it's a document of faith. And so it is not an argument for the existence of God. Now, what the biblical creation narrative is, that's point number three. So number two was what biblical creation narrative is not. Number three is what biblical, the biblical creation narrative is. Number three things. It proclaims the creation power of God, like, I love. Um, I like writing Latin and Greek terms. I don't know why. It's just one of those things. I some people like to play golf, so do I. I'm just not good at it, but I do like writing these kind of terms. Um, I just have to think when I write. Ex nihilo, out of nothing, God created ex nihilo, out of nothing. In the beginning, God spoke, and it was. This is this is a this is not um, evolution. We don't believe that um, there was a primordial soup that we all emerged out of. Because then you have to ask the question: Where did the primordial soup come from? You know, we you just you keep going back and back and back to the tiniest little cell. Where did it come from? The biblical narrative says God created out of nothing. All right, it's a proclamation of God's creative power. Number two, um, it is a revelation of the origin of humanity. That's really important. It it reveals it reveals where we came from, and we came from the image and likeness of God. We this, this to me is. Um, i can 't do justice to this subject like Peter Heck does justice to this subject, but suicide rates among teenagers is astronomical all right but 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 he makes this point makes it so art in such an articulate way um, you you can't spend all day long telling young people that they came from. Mud or soup, that they're just an amoeba or a cell that just happened to jump from the cell to a something that jumped around to something that had long arms and a long tail to this and expect them to feel like they have any meaning or any purpose. I mean, no wonder we can abort millions of babies a year because they're just... Stuff. They're just material. They're just substance. But the Bible says the origin of humanity is God breathed His life into them. So then, that young person, see, uh, and, and Peter, I can't even remember all the pieces that he puts to this argument. But you, you stick a teenager in a science class, and you tell him for hours that that he is, he just comes out of this this. Missed, and all of a sudden one day he went from an animal to a human, and 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 so they don't, they don't have any reason to have any self-esteem, and and then you start telling, them, but but you you've got some you've got some talent that that's what makes you that, that's what makes you worth something. But what about little paraplegic girl who has no talent? So what do you do to her? Well, okay, I don't have any talent, so does that mean I don't have any purpose and and um, well, it, it's, it's the people around you. You have friends. Well, somebody doesn't have any friends, they're. Both. I mean, where what makes us meaningful, significant and with purpose is the story of Genesis, God breathed into us his life, His image. Absolutely. That's why. That, but, but again, Rick, I mean, it's evil. One, but, but part of it's just flat out ignorance. We have people don't know the Bible. They don't know the story. They don't. They don't understand that God breathed in us the breath of life, and so, and they've been indoctrinated, and our country has been indoctrinated now for decades in, in everything but the Bible. And, and we even have Christians, well, I understand that choice thing, that makes sense, you know. Well, no, it doesn't if you understand that what makes you have meaning is not how you look, what talents you have, what friends you have. Whether you're happy or not, what makes you have meaning is that the life of God is in you. He breathed into you the life of God. So, secondly, it is a revelation of the origin of humanity. And thirdly, it, it, the third thing that the creation narrative is, is a demonstration of God's order and purpose, it's very orderly, and 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 there's it's purpose driven. Um, and number four, the fourth issue um, of creation are the views of creation, and um, this sort of will play into your question earlier. There are. There's probably more, but there's five main views of creation. How did it happen? One of the views is, um, and let me just pause a moment and say that one of the reasons these views have been developed is because we have tried to say this answers every scientific question, and now we have scientists saying, well, the Earth is billions of years old, and so... How do we jive that with six day creation? And, and, you know, okay, so people have come up with theories, and I'll I'll give you the theories and I'll tell you what I think. Uh, Number one, and you can just write this down, is the gap theory, all right? The gap theory. The gap theory is this um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the next line is, and the earth was without form and void. The gap theory says that um, God did not originally create the heavens and the earth. The, the word I told you earlier in Hebrew is chaotic. It was just formless and void, had nothing going on it. It was just a big. All right. Um, and, and so the th- gap theory says God would not have created it that way. And so, so something must have happened in between. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And they claim that there is a gap there. There's a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. And that gap could be billions of years. And what they do, and I'll give you the scriptures. I I will not take time to read them. um, but, But specifically, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. Seem to talk about the fall of Satan. All right. Um, Let me show you how this gap theory works. Maybe I can. What was Satan when he was created? What was he? He was an angel. All right. Everybody understand angels have not always been. God has always been. Angels have not always been. God created angels. Several places in Scripture, Isaiah, Job, talk about. The day that the angels were brought into existence. They are not eternal, or well, they have not had eternal existence. So one one says God created. One two says it was without form and void. Or in Hebrew it was chaotic. All right. Um, so the gap theory says this could be billions of years, and so what they do is they find Isaiah fourteen, Ezekiel twenty eight. And by the way, this is not the view that I hold to. I could, if it if it turns out that that's what happened, I could live with it. It, it doesn't mean it didn't happen, but I just don't think it's necessary to come up with this view. But these two passages. Some believe talk of the fall of Satan or Lucifer. Now I'm just going to everybody hear me say this. Um, I'm not going to spend lots of time here, but um, and we're not going to go to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 and unpack that because I don't think it's a it's an open shut case. I think you have to you have to kind of do away with what the text meant when it was written and read into it some things that may or may not be there. But Satan was an angel, uh, as we've already said, and angels, so this issue, this theory would say that when God created the heavens and the earth, he also created angels. And they all lived happily ever after for a million years, 20 billion years. There were things going on on earth. There was, you know, and then Satan decided... I want to be like God. We do know that happened. I want to be like God. I will ascend to the the mountain like him. And he fell. And he took a third of the angels with him. This theory says that when Satan fell, that he caused the heavens and earth to become chaotic, without form and void. There There are some places in Ezekiel 28 that talks about uh, when this one who falls fell, that he made the, um, uh, he made the cities a wasteland um, and destroyed the inhabitants. So if that is referring to the fall of Satan, it is possible that when Satan fell, the earth was destroyed. And then what happens in verse 3 of Genesis 1 is the recreation of the earth. All right. Now, let me tell you why that's at least plausible. What does God say to Adam and Eve after He creates them? Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. All right. Well, you don't replenish something that hadn't been previously plenished. All right. So, very possible. I don't get all concerned about it because. This is where the story starts for us, and this is what we need to concern ourselves with. But this, by the way, this is why this theory has been developed, would give a lot of answers to this 20 billion or 40 billion or 60 billion year old earth and dinosaurs and all sorts of things could easily fit into this. And that's why many have found this to be a very comfortable theory. And um, But again, I think it, we press on it the need to explain everything. And I'm not sure we have to explain everything, but if you find a need to explain everything, this is one way you can explain it with the gap theory. Secondly, uh, there is the created with age theory. This is much simpler. Um, Created with age theory. This is just, most of us do not believe that Adam was created as an infant um, baby, right? Nobody pictures that, do you? I mean, you, you picture a grown man right, when he created him. So the theory would be if he created Adam as a grown man, then he very easily could have created the earth with age. I mean, and, and some people say, oh, I couldn't do that, he's trying to trick people. Well, I don't know he's trying to trick people, but he could have created the mountains as if they were millions of years old, right? also divine deception. Huh? Or divine deception? Divine deception. Yeah, yeah, some people call it that. Um, but I don't think we think it's divine deception that he created Adam as a man, who may have been 33 years old or 45 years old? I happen to think he was 54 and looked just like me. That's what I think. But um, nevertheless, um, th- that's the uh, what did you say? <laughs> I said good luck. Oh, good luck with that. Okay, um, that's not what I thought you said. I'm, I'm glad that's all it was. Okay. Um, anyway, that's the that is the created with age theory. Okay, that may or may not be number three. Um, is the metaphorical day, and that is, you know, there is, a, there is one text that says a day with the Lord is like a thousand years, all right? So, it's like when God says in Genesis a day, he might not have 24 hours. Now, the problem with that theory is um, the, the morning and the evening were the first day. That's what the text says. So, morning and evening doesn't have a million years in between. It's morning and evening. It's, it seems like that narrative is speaking of a 24-hour day. So, I don't, metaphorical age is not one that I would... Um, actually, metaphorical day, excuse me, is not that. That's the day age. Okay, I messed you all up. Number three is metaphorical day, all right? Metaphorical day is not quite the same as day age, um, it's just simply saying that that Moses is writing in metaphors. he just he created it and he took billions of years to create it, but for our understanding, he's using metaphors. The fourth one is the day age theory, and that's the theory that says a day might be a billion years with God all right again that's I, I don't. I see no need to do that. That's, I guess, my biggest issue. And then the fifth theory, and I'll just be honest, and I may disappoint you all, or maybe you all love me for this. The the fifth theory is a literal six-day creation, and and that's what I think happened. I think it was a literal six-day creation. Um, I don't have all the answers for this, but I'm not too concerned about it. There may have been a gap, may not have been. But what I read, and that's all we've been given, the revelation we have been given is that there were six days. And there was a morning and an evening each of the six days. And so um, the six-day creation is the final theory. And you you can be called bad names by people <laughs> if you believe that it was a literal six days. I just happen to believe it was. I think that makes the most sense. I think it's what the revelation of Scripture is. And you can do with that what you want. But those are the theories, uh, the views of creation. Let me... Um, We're not going to get to um, the second point today, Um, surprise, surprise, but let me give you uh, some lessons of creation and then we'll, we'll call it a day, all right? Lessons of creation, there are four of them. Number one, God is one, not plural deities or plural gods. Um, he does exist in Trinity. Genesis 1.26, God says, let us make man in our image. And so that certainly implies Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all engaged. As a matter of fact, the Spirit of God in Genesis 1 is brooding over the face of the deep. God is creating and he speaks. What does God, when God speaks, what does John 1 1 say? In the beginning was the Word. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh. So the Word is the second person of the Trinity. So you see, God is in Trinity, has always existed in Trinity, but he's not multiple gods. So the creation, one of the lessons is, in the creation story, is the uh, oneness of God that exists in Trinity. Secondly, and and this is a biggie, second lesson, is there is a huge distinction, or great distinction, between creation and creator. Huge distinction between creation and creator. That dust, Michael, that dust had no power to become anything until the creator breathed into it the breath of life. All right? Romans 1 says that the whole downfall of humanity is because we have begun to worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. And I'll just tell you, um, we, we, I was talking with someone yesterday, um, just had coffee with them for a few minutes, and man, are we a mess in America. We, we, we may not have an idol, in one of those little niches in the mountains like they did in Caesarea that I talked about Sunday. But boy, we are absorbed with ourself. We worship and serve the creation more than the creator. I mean, we, we. I, I remember uh, uh, I was telling I was telling him when I was talking to him, I, and I don't even remember how we got on the subject, but um, there was a huge flood. I think it was in the Philippines two years ago or something like that, a huge flood. Um. And um, somebody posted a picture of a Sunday worship service in the Philippines right after that flood, and people were in this. Um, and it was during the winter here. And, and, and I'm not telling you to go drive on bad roads. Just don't. Just hear the spirit of this, okay? And, and it was it was January, I think, in in Indiana. It would be January everywhere, I guess. But anyway, you, you know you know what I'm saying. Um, that's really weird theology. Anyway, they had just had this huge, um, this huge flood in the Philippines. And, and somebody took a picture of their worship service. And um, they, they were standing with hands up. I mean, the place was packed. It was, a, it was a bamboo hut. place was packed. And people were standing with water up to their waist, lifting their hands and worshiping. And the little tag said, tell me again why you didn't go to church this morning. You know, we uh, think about how self-absorbed we are. I mean, we don't don't inconvenience me. And and that's just and and, I mean, it's hard. It's hard in America. It's just hard. We are blessed. We have nice stuff, nice cars. And it's not it's not Jesus doesn't tell us to get rid of all that stuff. But he did say it is more difficult. It is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle, than a rich man to get in the kingdom of God. And Americans, no matter who you are, we are rich compared to the rest of the world. So it is it is difficult to stay focused and, so, and not worship the creation more than the creator. Because quite honestly, most of the time we don't need the creator. We don't need him. He created us and we're blessed and we think we can make it without him. Thirdly, um, third lesson is God is moral and God is holy. He will say in this creation story, you may eat of all of these trees. See this one? You may not eat of that tree. What does that say about God? God is moral. He has, he has a right and a wrong. He's holy. This is how far you can go, but you can't go here. This is the picture of God in the creation narrative. R.C. Sproul, you may want to jot jot this statement down. R.C. Sproul just passed away, I think, within the last 12 months, maybe six months ago. He was a great theologian. And he says this, God's holiness gives the basis for his moral demands. God could say God's holiness gives the basis for his moral demands. God could say, You can't eat of this tree because God himself was holy. God can say, You can't do this. God can say, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not covet. God, what, what gives him the right because he's holy? He's moral and he's holy, and he can say that. And number four, um, humanity is distinct from all creation. Humanity is distinct from all creation, created both male and female. It's a long statement, so I'll read parts of it. Humanity is distinct from all creation, created both male and female, created to subdue, it's the third line, there's only four, created to subdue, yet limited in freedom. This is really important. God said, it's all yours. Accept that. Eat of every tree. Accept that. I want you to subdue and rule over all of the animals and all the plant life. But you will answer to me. All right? We we are created to rule and reign and subdue and, and conquer. But we still have limited freedom. Because we are created to worship and honor him. And that's the creation story. So, again, Dennis, back to your question. Where do they get this? How do they come up with it? They don't like that last part, limited in freedom. Limited in freedom. They don't don't want to answer to anybody. And so we've got to create another story that keeps me from being answerable to to a God. All right? No, and, and inside, he does not limit our freedom to um, keep us from joy. He limits our freedom because it's best for us, and he knows what's best. And, and every time we break that freedom, we step over our limited freedom, it always ends up in bankruptcy, spiritual, emotional, physical. That's a good one, yeah, I, I will not go with need, I will go with desire, yeah yeah. Um, his question is is not one of the lessons that this says that God has the desire, and then you said a need to create. I don't think God has the need because if God has the need, that means there's something in him that's not complete, and I, I don't think we want to serve a God, but he has a desire, absolutely, a love to to fellowship with us. See, um... wants that relationship? We were created in a relationship with God. Right. Father, Son, Holy Spirit live in relationship. I think that's one of the things we don't have not talked about well in the church. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit... I don't know if, if any of you remember, it's been four or five years ago now, but I talked about the relationship of the Trinity to one another. And, um... It's almost like they are in this, um, dance might freak some people out, but they're they're almost in this deferring to one another. You know, Um, no, I want you to be seen. No, I want you to be seen. No, I want you to be seen. And and that's how they live in that kind of love relationship. And I think God created us. Some make the point that God created us body, soul, and spirit. Um, And the Trinity was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But God wants us to live in that same kind of community where we, in honor, prefer one another. So he did desire other people to experience that same kind of community and relationship. as, yeah. as I thought about that, I think the closest I can come to it's like being part of a team. Sure. Where we lift each other up. And Absolutely. nobody's interested in you know, my look at me. I think that 's what Ephesians four says that we will um, that we will are to grow in unity until we reach the fullness of the stature of Christ. We are to grow into that kind of unity until we get there and so um, yes, I think creation does indeed say God has a desire to fellowship with us and for us to fellowship with one another all right we 're going to stop there and uh, we 'll pick it back up. We are committed, both Kyle and I are committed and and we we do hear I, I know that people have enjoyed the bible studies but we also know that sometimes we try to tackle too much and um we we just both like to talk a lot and get get you know get a long way down the road but we're committed to taking whatever time it takes and if it takes us three years to get through the bible we will take three years so uh We're keeping the notes shorter for that reason to encourage more discussion so we're not feeling like, oh, we've got to get through something. So uh, we'll take it slow and hopefully learn together. Um, And if I'm still doing this in February, it's a win for me. Okay? So uh, God bless you. Have a great day. See you.